This is the Servers Radio Network. Welcome to this edition of A Server's Journey with Rocky DeStefano. Rocky has been a server since his early days of working behind a counter at a Chick-fil-A to having a very successful restaurant of his own. Being a server himself, he loves to talk about leading yourself, a few, many, and leading an organization. Today, Rocky's guest is Patrick Lencioni. Patrick is the founder of The Table Group, and he's authored 11 books which have sold over 5 million copies and been translated into over 30 languages. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much. I, I really do appreciate you coming on, as, as I've already shared. You've had a really big impact on my leadership story, and, and so I, I wanted to start, if I could, and just ask you about your story and how you got started. Well, you know, um, I, I think the most important thing to think about it for me is that I grew up in a family where my dad didn't go to college, but he worked really hard, and I was very interested in his work life. And he was frustrated by management at his company, and I didn't know what that meant when I was a kid. Right. And my dad was really good at what he did. He was a salesman, God rest his soul, and, and, and I was bummed for him. And so as I got older and got my own jobs and went to college and worked hard and got my first job after that, I was pretty fascinated by what management was and how that imp- impacted people's lives. And so in my first couple jobs, I found that most management wasn't very good. And I said, you know, I think I want to work on that in my life. Wow. And so I started, I got into, uh, I, I worked my way into a job in organizational development and spent about seven years doing that. And then one day I thought, you know, I love working with these people I work with. And I got some job offers for some from some pretty high profile CEOs, but I decided I really would, wanted to work with good people and start my own consulting firm. So we launched that consulting firm a little, little over 20 years ago. Wow. And we thought, we're just going to consult to small companies in the Bay Area for the rest of our lives, and thank God for that. We'll be able to pay our mortgage and enjoy our work. <laughs> and then I wrote a book, and people asked me to give a talk on it, and next thing, you know, I was very blessed. I, I to be thankful to God because I've gotten to do more and more of what I love to do, and more people have listened to what I kind of believe. And so the table group is now... You know, we've got 50 consultants around the world and and uh, our headquarters here in California, and we get to do writing and speaking and consulting and put out information and do wonderful things like this podcast. So <laughs> that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I remember reading uh, bits about that, and I remember being impressed about um, you had watched your father and you understood some of the struggle that he was going through. And then when you first came into your own career, you were in the right places, you thought, but but you noticed the leadership wasn't quite, um, it, you know, really wasn't quite up to what you thought it could be. How did you get started from, from the point of wanting to consult? How did you get started writing about leadership and about managing styles and so forth? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I was working at a company and in the software industry, and um, I had worked with this one CEO for, for a while. And he was a really good leader, I thought. And then another guy took over for him. And I noticed right away that this new guy had a problem. And, he, that, and his issue was that he was more interested in his status than he was in producing results. He, he was really, it was all about his ego. Wow. And, and if he did well on TV and, 
And even if the company's results were down, he didn't really get bothered by that. It was all if he didn't look good on TV or people were blaming him. So I thought, well, there's the problem with leaders. They're too status-oriented. They're not enough about results. But then I said, but this other guy didn't care about status, but he had a problem. Oh, he didn't, he didn't like to hold people accountable. And then, then I said, but what about this? Why wouldn't somebody hold people accountable? And I, I came up with this theory, these five points that made these sequential points. And I, and I thought, that, there it is. There's the five temptations that leaders have. And um, so I started telling people about it, and people started repeating it back to me over time. And a year later, some guy came to me and wrote the five temptations on my whiteboard, and I said, hey, those are, I came up with that a year ago. He goes, oh, I know. <laughs> you told me. I use it all the time now. Wow. And finally, somebody said, you need to write a book about this theory. Wow. And I thought, oh, man, I don't know if I have time for that. And they said, well, somebody else is going to write a book about that. And so I decided, okay, maybe I do need to do that. That's right, yeah. And so I sat down, Rocky, to write it, and I, uh, I decided that I really didn't want it to be a long, boring book because I, I purchased too many of those in my life. Sure. And so I wrote a – I decided I would tap into my, my passion for writing fiction screenplays that I had in my life. And I wrote a fiction story about it. We never thought it would – we didn't know it would get published – we were going to take it to Kinko's and make copies of it to give it to our clients at our new consulting firm. And uh, a publisher saw it. They liked it. They printed it. And it went from there. You know, I've always been intrigued about your um, writing style, and, and that kind of fills in some gaps. I know that you write what I would call like a leadership fable. And what I've right. always enjoyed about that is it's a very interesting book on its own. And anybody at any level, whether they're, you know, 16-year-old, uh, you know, cashier or a CEO can read and relate to it. But then you, at the very end, really dig deep into the, the, the pieces you're trying to get people to understand. So I've always appreciated that. Uh, it's really helped me and also my team. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. And, you know, I was in your store um, probably 10 years ago. And I remember that well, and I've seen you from time to time since then. And it's, I love Chick-fil-A, and I love the way you, the, the culture and the way people manage, and I'm really happy for your success. And well, thank it's you. fun to see people who live these theories even before they read about them because I think they're very natural. So you know, so the, it's, the, it's, I'm glad to know that it's helped you. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of, of your compliments. But to me, it's always, you know, I, I think I was living some of the values that I've read in your book out. But I think what your books specifically, there was one that I was really moved by was the five dysfunctions of a team where, yeah, I was living some of these out, but I wasn't intentional with it. And I think what your writing has really taught me is it's good to have the knowledge and it's good to even use it, but you've got to be intentional when you're in leadership if you really want to have an impact on people. Um, so I, again, really appreciate that. Thank you very much, Rock. Tell me, uh, how do you know when, because you're a very prolific writer, you've written, I think, 11 books, and uh, it's sold millions of copies, and you've, you're in every language almost, but um, how do you know when you've written a great book compared to a good book? Well, you know, I think the thing about it is, Rocky, is that I, I'm very blessed to have a great editor and, and others here in my company that edit for me, and and we, they have very high standards, and I do too, but I'm not very good at finishing a book. <laughs> and, and they do not let me mail in the end. And, they, and I'm really, I really don't want to ever 
write a book and go, well, that's the one that was really bad. Right. And so every time I write a book, I think, okay, God, help me to do this well. And I don't want to, um, to do something. First of all, I don't take on a book if I don't really feel passionate about what I'm writing about. Sometimes people say, what are you going to write next? And I say, well, I don't have anything right now. Maybe that's my last book. Right. So, so I don't want to write something just to write a book. Secondly, when we're doing it, I think about the reader. And I think, if this is not compelling... And it's really easy to get lazy. And, and thankfully, my editor, Tracy Noble, she'll just say, Pat, I don't think this character works, or I don't think this point is made clearly. Wow. And so we kind of agonize over it. Right. But, so I would say it's just blood, sweat, and tears and the grace of God. How long, does it take you, how long does it take you to write a book? What, what's the time frame that you're usually working on? Somebody asked me that just the other day, and, and I, get it asked, I get asked a lot. And the truth is, I say it's kind of like having a baby. It's probably about nine months, but I don't write full time. If I actually had the capacity and the, and the schedule cleared enough to sit down and write a book full time, I would say it's two and a half or three months. Wow. Um, I think I'm a pretty quick writer, but I don't write that way. I write and then I, I do other things and I think about things and it kind of bakes and I think about it in the shower or while I'm exercising. And so I think most of my books play out over the course of about nine months. You know, again, I only write for like two days. I'll write for a day and a half or two days at a time, and then I'll put it down. Do you have to plan your day to, to write? Are you planning a day writing, or is that just, okay, I've got time, I'm going to do it? Now, what my, my office will do, and it gets harder all the time, is they'll send me off to this hotel that's about <laughs> two miles from my office and two miles from my house. It's in between my house and my office because I, I like my family and my colleagues too much to do it when I'm around them. <laughs> So they send me off to this hotel, and it's very lonely, and I sit there and I write, and, um, and I call people, and I say, Laura, to my wife, send the kids over to go swimming at the hotel with me, <laughs> you know, or spend the night. And so I'm, I'm an extrovert, and I, I like people, and so it's tough for me to, to, so they make me go away and do it. You know, I don't know how you get any work done. I, I believe your, your office is in San Francisco. Is that correct? Well, it's in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's about... 15 miles east of the city, over the bay and over the hills. So we're yeah. kind of in our own little area. It looks a little bit more like Tennessee, probably. Oh, I like that area. Well, I can tell you, my wife and I went there last year, and I don't know how you get any work done in San Francisco. <laughs> it's such a great city, and it's such a great city to be outdoors in that I understand them having to send you away a little bit to kind of become a hermit for a while and write. Yeah, I should probably like go someplace in the winter where it's all totally snowed in, like in the movies you see people do. And I have no way to to get out. <laughs> yeah, but, that um, could be a good that could be a good ploy for sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, Patrick, the the Wall Street Journal called called you one of the most in demand speakers and writers, and and I know that you address millions of people in your conferences and events all around the world, and and I know that you get energy from both writing and also from the consulting and speaking, but. I had a question for you of, is there, is there an author that you love that maybe doesn't get the recognition that they deserve yet? Oh, wow. Well, yes, yes. I've always, um, and you know, in the, just in the world, there's a guy named John Carmichael who wrote a book called Drunks and Monks, and okay. he's brilliant and fascinating, and it's one of the best books I've ever read. I've read it a number of times. i I keep copies around to give to guys. I know it's a, it's a faith-based book, but it's a book about his life, and, and he's just brilliant, just brilliant, an incredible wow. writer. Well, I and just wrote that Amazon down. And look, what's that? 
I just wrote that down, so I'll definitely be going on Amazon later. Yeah, well, I, I missed the, you know, the, t- you, the title again. Drunks and Drunks Monks. Drunks and Monks. <laughs> okay. O-N-K-S. And um, he's just brilliant. And if you, when you go on Amazon, it's, it seems like every 15 reviews says, I think this is the best book I've ever read. So he's one <laughs> of those guys, I think. Man. Wow. And then, um, but, and then in the business world, you know, there's this book, and I haven't read it all because I'm so busy, but it's called, um, gosh, let me see if I can remember the title. And it's written by the Arbinger Institute. The, the guy who wrote it was so humble um, that he didn't even put his name on it. I think others helped with it. But it was called Leadership in the Art of Self-Deception. That's what it's called. Wow. And, Great and title. that's a book that a lot of people know of but doesn't get enough traction. But then one of the, the best books I've ever read in the world, most people don't know, was written by this priest. And it's called Searching for and Maintaining Peace. And his name is Father Jacques Philippe. And wow. he's a French priest, I think. Well, um, you know yeah. what? I, I appreciate those. I, I feel like I'm always, you know, at any one point reading three or four books at a time. So I'm definitely going to be yeah. picking these up. You know, I, I'm kind of like you. I'm a little bit, I like to jump in and then kind of pull aside for a little bit. But I always have three or four books I'm reading on my desk. So Yeah, so, me too. And, and, but I don't do a lot of reading because when I'm writing, I don't have a chance to. So people are always saying, have you read this? I'm like, right, no, yeah. I haven't yet. Yeah, I find I'm always a, a year or two behind, but that's okay. We'll catch up eventually. So, Yeah, that's right. So, so let's talk about your, your recent book, The Ideal Team Player. And, you, yeah. you know, we call this show The Server's Journey, and we're real intentional, uh, you know, with that name um, because we – we want to help people not only lead, but, but lead with that, a certain amount of integrity. And I, I was wondering, um, as you're writing this book, you talk about three virtues that, that a team player ha- has. Um, can, can you kind of share a little bit about those? Sure. And just so you know, you asked me a great question before, Rocky, about making sure my books aren't bad. <laughs> this book, this book was, it's so simple. And when I, when I, I wasn't even going to write it. And people encouraged me to, and I thought, well, I, I want to make sure it's good enough. I thought it was too simple. And yeah. then we wrote it, and thankfully Tracy's a good editor, and we made it compelling. But um, it's selling faster than any book I've ever written, and I wow. think it's because it's so applicable. So the, 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 uh, the book is about how to find people and develop people who, who just work really well on teams. It comes down to three qualities. A person who's a great team player is going to be humble, Right. which means it's not about themselves, it's about others. This is that servant thing that you were talking about. They're going to be hungry, which means they're going to want to work hard. They, they have a desire to do more. Right. So they don't just do the minimum. They're all like, well, I'll, I'll go beyond the minimum, beyond what's expected and do more. And they're going to be smart, but not intellectually smart. They're going to be emotionally intelligent. Right, which is very important. They're going to be so important. So, and if you can find people that are humble, hungry, and smart, they're just going to do well on a team. and They're going to work well with others. And if you can get a whole team of people like that, they get, you know, one plus one plus one equals ten. Right. It's a powerhouse. They just get so much done. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think the book was simple. I, I, I think you're underselling it a little bit, but I understand what you're saying. But, but I love what you were you know, you mentioned it's applicable to almost everybody. And what I found in, in my own store is I'm having, you know, 16 year old kids that are, it's their very first job and we're going over some of this content and they're really moved by it and they kind of get it. And in particular, 
They get it. They understand because you talk a lot about, well, what if a team player has two of those traits and not all three? What kind of issues can develop? And they are so intrigued by the idea of that. So I was wondering if you could flesh out just a little bit of that, what, what that might mean. Sure. So, so, like, so you have humble, hungry, and smart, right? Let's say you find, there's a person who's really or, or, or pretty darn good at two of them but not, not another. So let's say they're very humble, which is the most important of those, and they're hungry, they're hardworking, but they're not very emotionally intelligent. So they just don't quite know how to say the right thing or understand other people's feelings. Now, I have a lot of time for people like this because that means they have good intentions. Right. But we call that person the accidental mess maker. <laughs> so they, they do good things and they mean well, but they kind of ruffle people's feathers and you got to clean up after them and they, you got to help make them apologize and they're glad to do it because they're like, I didn't mean it. And so that's the accidental mess maker. It's a person who's good at humble and hungry, but they're pretty, pretty clueless about emotional intelligence. So right. you really got to work with them on training them about how to understand people better and adjust their behavior. If yeah. a person is humble and smart, so they're, they're not ego-driven and they do understand people, but they're not very hungry, so they're, they're pretty lacking in, in hunger, we call that the, um, the lovable slacker. Right. That's that person that's fun to be around and, and people enjoy them and they're, 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 they care about people. They just don't really like to work hard. Right. And the problem is they're lovable, so we keep them around sometimes longer than we should or we, we tolerate them for a long time. But we really got to push them. In addition to being a wonderful person, they need to also carry their weight. And people usually have to pick up for them their slack, and they, that can cause resentment on a team, even though they mean well. Sure, yeah. I, you know, there's a couple things that I'm trying to, to draw out for anybody who would listen to this podcast is that, you know, it's good to be hungry and it's good to be humble. And if you're good at those two, that's a good start. But but as your book shares, you've got to be smart, too. And it's OK to be smart and hungry. And that's good, too. But you've got to find that humble. You, you know, you've got to be this to be a complete leader. You've got to be that ideal team player, too, I think. Yeah, if anyone is lacking, if, if there's one that's egregiously lacking, now none, nobody's perfect. Sure. But if there's one that's really lacking, it's problematic. Well, and, and, and I think, too, it's – and we understand no one's a complete person. I might be very strong in, in two and, and weak in another, but I think what your book helps to really bring out is – but you can't be lazy about that third. You have to be working toward getting better at it. You, you know, you can't just exactly. kind of say, oh, well, I'm just not very good at that. It, it, you know, to be the ideal pl- person, you've got to work at it. And, you know, the thing I notice uh, – I work a lot with younger is – they're very, very smart, and, and they're pretty humble, too. The, uh, or I'm sorry, they're actually hungry and, and humble, but the part that they tend to struggle with right now is that smart, and it's that emotional, yep. intention, uh, you know, reading people. And, and I think it, some of it is maybe um, the way we interface with people is so much more of us over social media that we've kind of lost a little bit on that one-on-one space. Yes. You know, I noticed that my boys, I have two boys in college. I have two other boys, too. I have four boys. And um, I think in their early, when they were younger, I think they're, they're, they get delayed in their social skills because of that. Right. And, and then they went to college and they joined a fraternity where they got 
forced to really interact with people in an intense way. And now they live in a house with 11 guys. <laughs> and my boys have grown so much right. in their ability. They're 20 years old now, and they've really become young men who know how to talk to people and deal with people. But they were forced to do that in college, whereas when we were kids, I don't think without social media and without computers being around and everything and TV being relatively limited, we had to deal with one another. Sure, yes. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. Kids today yeah, <laughs> don't yeah. necessarily have to, so sometimes it's delayed. Well, you know, I, I have three daughters, so when we're off air, I may need to try to arrange a, a, maybe a marriage or two because I'm looking for hey, very, I'm for it. very <laughs> eligible, you know, good, good young men. Uh, but um, <laughs> I, I, I've seen the same thing with my, within my own family. They're, I think they're, they really are humble and they're really, really uh, just innately hungry. They want to know. They want to be cause driven. Yeah. Um, but we've had to work on that one aspect of, uh, you know, being being the emotionally smart. And I think you're right. My oldest is in college. And that's kind of where she turned the corner, where she kind of looked up and said, oh, wait, this person really exists. They're, they're right in front of me. They're not just on a computer screen. I, I better treat them well. Uh, so, right. yeah, I, I agree with you on that. All right. So yeah. Hey, and you know, I didn't cover the last one because it's the most important. Please. Um, and that is the, the, if a person is hungry and smart, so they're really driven and they're really smart, but they're not humble, that's the most dangerous kind because that's what we call the skillful politician. Yeah. That's the person who, who knows how to fake it, but they really are not humble. And you just don't want those in your store, in your organization. Yeah. Because they will usually, by the time you figure out what's going on, there's usually a trail of dead bodies behind them. Yeah. And it creates real. So when you interview, the first thing we should always go for is humility. Oh, I love that. Because, because but this, cause the skillful politician, they destroy organizations. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think that we all know, you know, in our past, we we know a time where we've kind of been manipulated by somebody who was hungry and smart, but lacked that humility. And it never leaves us with a good feeling, you know, but you know, in, you know, comparison, if somebody's humble and, and uh, hungry, okay, they, we, we kind of cut them some slack, I think. Yeah, how, exactly. How do you look for, so, so you mentioned this aspect of humility, how do you find that in an applicant when you're interviewing them? What do you look for? Well, there's all kinds of things. There's all kinds of ways to do it. I mean, it's just the way they talk to you usually in the interview that's the most important thing, which is not very scientific. But you can ask questions, too, about what things they've done in their lives. And if they talk about we and they share credit for it, that's a decent indicator. I love and that. if they're talking about I all the time, that might not be. But I, then the other thing is just, just ask them about their strengths and weaknesses and humble people are usually comfortable talking about real weaknesses they have. Right. And then talk to other people that have worked with them and just, and you know, ask them questions like compared to the other people you worked for, how, how selfless are they? Hmm. How much are they interested in other people? Wow. That's, and, uh, that's great you feedback. Know, I have a, I have a friend that worked at, uh, was a senior executive at Southwest airlines, which is a wonderful company. And he used to work, look for this, he would interview people and he would do something interesting. He would say, so tell me about the largest group of people you've ever managed. And, and the people that he was interviewing often thought he was looking to see if they could manage a lot of people at once. And they'd say, oh, I once managed 15 people. He said, okay, well, who are they? And tell me about them. And humble people are usually other-centered and they know the people in their lives and they can tell you details. Hmm. And he's 
think, okay, tell me about this person uh, that worked on your team. What was the most important thing going on in her life when you worked? You know, yeah. And you can tell if a person's faking that. Sure. Yeah. I think in one of your books, and I'm, I'm I can't remember because to be honest, I've written or uh, read almost all of your books, and so sometimes I confuse them, and I'm kind of like hey, I do too. I wrote them and I confuse <laughs> them, so don't yeah. feel bad. Sometimes I take a principle from one and a principle from another, and I combine them, and I'm like, okay, wait, these are two separate books. But... I think you're giving him another idea. <laughs> you know. <laughs> One of your books, you you mentioned that there was a uh, a peer of yours that couldn't figure out. She kind of had this dream job, and everything seemed to be all right. She worked for a great company. She had great pay, you know, great everything. But something was unsettling. She just didn't connect. And then uh, she kind of figured it out when, after she came back from a maternity leave, nobody really asked about her her new baby. This like huge thing in her life. And nobody really seemed right. to care. And uh, I forget which book it was, but that had an impact on me about really these are real lives that people lead. And you have you have to care about those kind of things, um, even sometimes more than the results you might have at the workplace. Absolutely. You know, people are human beings and they're 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 people first. Uh, I'd say they're children of God first. And if we're not interested in that part of them, why are they going to want to yeah. go above and beyond in the work we do? And we don't do that just because we want no. to work hard. We do it because you got to treat them well. That's right. And, um, and a humble person understands that yeah. uh, a manipulative person might take an interest in them just to get them to do more work. Right. And humility can't be faked. Yeah. You know, I, I think short term people might be fooled, but long term, they really know. And and I'm a big believer. Uh, I, I've, I've written a, an article about the fact that I feel like most people don't leave organizations. They leave bad leaders. They, I mean, they yeah. literally can't wait to get away from somebody who just isn't, doesn't care about them. They have to be cared about too. Uh, uh, but, absolutely. And but, the best companies in the world and, you know, Chick-fil-A is on that list. Southwest is on that list. There's plenty of others. It's because, I mean, it starts and ends with a, a genuine concern about the people that work there. And I've yeah. worked at other companies that didn't have that. And nobody was, you know, but, but it's not like you, it's not just corporate thing. They have to teach, find managers who do that. Because people don't just leave the company. They leave their manager. Sure. But you've got to create a culture where that's what's expected. Yeah. And, and it, like for us, it starts with True Cathy. It was pretty clear he was setting an example and then you know i felt like i had to live up to that example um it, it was innate it was almost viral in our it's like a virus in our company yes. but it was a good virus you know so yeah so i don't want to keep you forever but but we have a couple fun things we like to do and, and the first one that i'm just curious about before we get into our we we have a segment that we call this one or that one but do, do you have a <laughs> Do you have a favorite book that you've written or do you, I mean, you know, cause I'm sure they're all like your children that you spent all this yeah. time with them, but is there one that you really love or are very proud of? You know, um, I wrote a book recently that, you, that nobody knows that the people here don't know about probably on the call called the better pastor, which is for priests because I, I did some work and, and we were trying to teach priests how to be better leaders. And I wrote one called the better pastor. So in some ways that's my favorite. I think the book, um, I wrote, called um, 
we changed the title, actually. It used to be called The Three Signs of a Miserable Job. Yes. Now it's called The Truth About Employee Engagement. Yes. There's something I like about that because it's kind of why I started doing this career. And it's about how to manage people so that they feel loved and respected and engaged in their work, which is what you and I were just talking about. Yes. But other than, I, than that, it's, they are kind of like kids in the sense that I don't really have a favorite. Um, and thankfully I've worked really hard on all of them. So I don't think like, Oh, this one stinks. <laughs> you know, I think they're all okay. Right. So it's well, hard to pick one. Well, I, I, uh, I got thrown off a little bit with that name change because I, I actually own the book in, in both titles. Um, but I, I, item. Yeah. <laughs> I was happy you changed the name because I did feel like the first one, it almost felt like even though it was all this really great information, it almost had like a negative connotation in the title. So I was happy to see that you changed it. Um, and that book is one of the ones that we've used at our store to go over with all of our leadership. And I think it's been one of the most influential on in how they treat others and how they recognize that people have to be acknowledged for who they really are. So it was, it, it, right. it's a great book. So. And it takes place at a restaurant. And I worked at a restaurant when I was a kid. And and I think the dignity that people need in, jo- in all jobs is important. By the way, today, as you're we're recording this, is the is May 1st, and in the Catholic Church, I'm a Catholic, it's the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Sure, yeah. And the dignity that people need to have in their jobs. And I just think that's so important. And if you can provide people with these three things from that book, they're really going to love their work, and they're going to feel Absolutely. loved on. Yeah, and it's... So, it's, um, it's so it, I, that's kind of my one of my favorites. It's always surprising to me, because... I've had people leave for a better opportunity that I really, I was so excited for them. And yet they seem to not want to leave. And it was because of some of these things that we were doing that we learned from the book, because I think, I think good people recognize it's not all about money. It's, it is about money sometimes, but, but not all. And I'm, I'm in a good place here. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We we uh we accredit a lot to that book. So, all right. Oh, that's wonderful. So, uh, for, first, I want to plug you, or I want to give you the opportunity to plug yourself. T- talk about how somebody can get your books, or they can request for you to come speak. Um, give us some information on on how to get in contact with you. Well, our website's the best place to start, and that's triple W, of course. Table Group. Our company is called the Table Group. So, tablegroup.com. Okay. Um, and there's everything on there about books, speaking, writing, products, and everything else. We're also having a new event next January of 2019 in Dallas, our first ever conference for oh, leaders wow. and consultants. And and so we're going to have 800 people in Dallas spending a little over two days with us learning about all the stuff we do. And it's going to be fun and some interesting speakers and and uh, so that's our first ever conference. We're calling it the Unconference because we're going to try to make it different. All right. So we're going to go on to our first uh, fun segment, and, and we call it this right. this one or that one. And in this segment, it's really easy. I'm not going to put you too much on the spot, but I'm going to mention two people, and I want you to kind of tell me your favorite and, and maybe why you, you like that one better than the other one. All right. So the first two are Elon Musk or Richard Branson. I think Richard Branson. I think he's a little more joyful. Okay. And I think that um, I'm not big on ego. 
<laughs> and um, I think that Branson might be a little less ego-driven than Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, but and, it's a tough um, race. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, a little less ego-driven. And um, a little more joyful, maybe a little bit more into people. Elon Musk seems a little bit more like, I want to, he says some things that it just seems like it's hubris. And it's yeah. like, oh. So anyway, so and, I'll go with Branson. And you're a traveler. I bet you travel quite a bit. So the people who travel a lot tend to like Richard Branson and kind of what he's done for the airline industry. Yeah, yeah, Virgin does a great job. Um, next would be Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. You know, I had I met Steve Jobs. I interviewed with him once. Oh, wow. Um, when he was at Pixar, and he offered me a job. Um, I Again, I would say, I, I think, and Steve Jobs, God rest his soul, has passed on, but I think Bill Gates is a little less about the spotlight and... Um, and so probably I would think he's a little bit more, the humility might be a little bit more there. No, I think it, Steve Jobs, and I interviewed with him, he was, a little, he's, he was so brash. And I think that uh, Bill Gates, though, certainly not one lacking confidence. I don't, I don't think he wanted to be in the spotlight all the time. Right, yeah. And you can see what he's done, all the good things that he's doing with his money. I, you know, I, right. he has a chance to be very greedy, and he's not. So what was right. the job you were interviewing for with Steve Jobs? Well, he was running Pixar, and they needed a head of HR, and a headhunter called me. And I wasn't really an HR guy, and they said that was okay. So they offered me the job to run human resources at Pixar. Wow. And, um, and I turned him down because I didn't love HR and because I kind of knew that working that closely with Steve would have been a pretty crazy thing. Wow. You know, I knew of his reputation. And what's interesting is when I turned them down, he called the headhunter back and, and said, hey, listen, I'm going to come take Pat to lunch tomorrow because I don't think people turn Steve Jobs down for a lot of things. <laughs> and, then, and then that day is the day the CEO of Apple quit and the board rehired Jobs to run Apple. So I fell off his radar. And I think that that was probably a, a blessing from God. And Jobs had a lot of good things, you know, and I think he tried, wanted to do good things for other people too. And we had a great, he and I had a great conversation about Pixar movies and how important they were and the stories and everything. So I'm sure he had a, a lot of good qualities, but he was probably just a little too mercurial for my taste. Yeah, yeah. For, I mean, without a doubt. Okay, uh, Steven Spielberg or Walt Disney? Oh, Walt Disney. Yeah, you know what? He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 100%. Every single person that we've asked this question to is always Walt Disney. And I, I, I'm guessing it's because of the story and the child in him and, and how he did this amazing thing with a culture that still it's still Walt Disney's culture. Yeah, he was just, and you know, the, the, the simple virtue in his stories. And yeah. it was a time when, when, when every story taught lessons that were good for society. And I, I certainly love a lot of Spielberg's movies, but I don't love them all. Right. And, um, and I don't know that they're all really geared toward the same kind of thing. I mean, Disney was, Walt Disney was just such a, a neat guy. Like you said, childhood family it was just wonderful yeah all right now these last two are very important to me uh number one star wars or harry potter well i will tell you star wars because i really like star wars and i will, i'm going to tell you something else i've never read a single harry potter book or seen a harry potter movie wow. my kids have yes i just have no interest i don't know why the genre i've heard some things that don't sound great about them but i love the star wars movies wow. although i have to say 
they, they've kind of lost their way. I think the last <laughs> ones have gotten a little too Disneyfied, if you will. I think but, uh, um, people of our generation, we definitely like the original Star Wars. We're having trouble with some of the newer ones. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Too much backstory. And, and we have our opinions. Like, I think the best one was The Empire Strikes Back, which was number five now, but it was the second one. That was right. Made. Yeah. They were great. So definitely Star Wars. Okay. You know, and, I, <laughs> and now I, I, I mentioned that I have a household full of women, and they're great young women, very opinionated. So this last one is a question that they demand I ask. Broadway or rock and roll? Wow, I'd have said rock and roll most of my life. Right. I'd still say rock and roll. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Phantom of the Opera, I love that. Right. And a great Broadway show is great, but but I'm not one of those chorus line right. Chicago yes. kind of people. I like to tease people about those because I think they're kind of generic, and <laughs> I, I know that makes me sound dumb. So I'll take rock and roll, but I do love a great musical or a great show, but, but I'm going to go with rock and roll. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I would have the exact same journey. I would have said rock and roll most of my life, but my daughters, they require that I like Broadway and I get to know it. Otherwise, I have very limited conversations with them. So, And you should I, see Rocky on the chorus line. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes, yes. <laughs> no one wants to see that, so... Well, my wife loves musicals. Yes. And um, I always give her a hard time about the ones that I think are not that great. But, but you know, um, it's amazing when you go to one and you realize how talented people are. Part of the problem with musicals is so few people have access to them. Sure, yeah. Well, it's funny. We, uh, you know, I mentioned we were out in San Francisco and we had been trying to see Hamilton forever and couldn't get tickets and by luck got tickets out in San Francisco. And, you know, again, it was so hard to find the tickets that we had to travel all the way across the country to get them. So you're right. Access is a problem. Wow. Well, it's kind of it really is kind of something for for people with money. Yes. Unfortunately. (laughs) Yes. Well, or they have money for a limited time until they buy the Hamilton tickets and then they don't have money. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Oh, my gosh. The price of things is just crazy. Well, I'll go rock and roll. I'm not sure if, if, if you pass the test or not, but we're going to go on to our final segment. It's a simple one, but since we believe that each of us is on this journey, we like to ask uh, the question of, you know, tell us your favorite leader or maybe your, your life quote. Yeah, well, my favorite life quote is probably from uh, the Bible when Jesus says, you know, um, come to me, all you who are burdened and oppressed, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow. And... Uh, I think there's just so much anxiety and fear in the world, and and Jesus just said, "Hey, lay it down right here, and I'll I'll, yeah. I'll help you with that." That's an awesome. My one. favorite, my favorite leader. You know, Theodore Roosevelt would have to be on that list. Good he man. Said so. He was just so non-ego driven and so plain spoken. Yeah, uh, um, I agree with you. And he was green before his time. Right. Exactly, and he yeah. didn't do it for the wrong reasons. You know what I mean? He, he sometimes I feel like, and people don't even know that he was a conservationist oh, yes. way back when it wasn't cool. Yeah, yes, he 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 was an. You know, I think as you, I I read a lot of biographies, so I read his, and I there was so much I didn't even realize that he was a that we attribute that or that we should attribute to him that we don't. So. Exactly, and he has a great quote. One of the best quotes I heard this just recently. He said. Comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that is a wonderful quote. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. I think Larry's got something to say, and then we'll let you go here. Patrick, thank you. This has been one fantastic uh, journey that we're on. I want to remind everyone they can still subscribe to the podcast. You know where to do it. Just punch in there and subscribe, and we want to thank everybody that's coming along on the journey. And um, also we'll be able to get where Patrick's books are. So that's the good thing. Yeah, we'll actually put that up on our um, website for their uh, serversjourney.com. And again, uh, Patrick, I just want to say, uh, I believe and we all believe that are attached to this show that that we're on, we're on this journey. And it's really all about how you serve others while you're in this role and while you're on this journey. And uh, that's why we're sharing here. So Uh, I'm Rocky DiStefano. I want to thank you, Patrick, for joining. And for everybody listening, it's up to you now to be a great leader and one with integrity.